me as we ask God to give us his spirit to govern and capture and illumine our hearts as we open his word and continue to worship hearing from God this morning. We ask, Father, that you would speak to us through your word. In fact, I ask for myself, even as I have the privilege of speaking this word, that I would hear it myself as both messenger, preacher, and hearer, that we would together as your family declare your glory and marvel in your grace and worship you. So, Father, we come before you asking that you would give us your spirit, asking that it would make the word clear, that we would understand both its meaning and its application to our lives, both individually and corporately. We ask that you open our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One more time, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. And then I promise you get to sit down for quite a while. I don't know if it's a longer sermon than usual, but, you know, I plan on being more than five minutes, so you get to sit for a little bit. But we do this in honor of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord that we're hearing. We have been studying and doing a series of sermons on Jesus' letters in Revelation to the seven churches in Asia Minor, that he is dictating these what we call prophetic oracles to. And so this morning is the church... At Pergamum, it's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have, some, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's review what we're doing and why we're studying it, what we're looking at as we look at these seven letters dictated by Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor. First, a little bit of context. It's the year A.D. 96. Happens to be the last year of the reign of the Emperor Domitian. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, author of the fourth gospel and also the three letters of John, is in exile. He's on the island of Patmos, which is about 40 miles from the mainland and the churches that happen to be there. Very important question to ask is, why is he in exile? Why is he on the island of Patmos? He is in exile because of his allegiance to Jesus as Lord. See, when the Roman emperor made an edict that all Roman subjects across his empire must worship Caesar as Lord, John refused. And he had to. 
We're not talking about being a good citizen. We're not talking about paying your taxes. We're not talking about loving your neighbor. We're talking, it's an issue of kingdoms here. The kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom of Christ. Who is Lord of your life? So for John's allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, it got him banished. From home, temple, everywhere he was banished, exiled for his faithfulness to Jesus. And while in exile... While worshiping, he heard a voice, and he turned around and he looked to see where the voice was coming from, and he received a vision, a vision of the glorified, ruling, reigning, transfigured Jesus, the true Lord, the true King of the whole world. And Revelation 1 describes this vision. And what does he see? He sees Jesus standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands, and Revelation is filled with imagery. The seven golden lampstands stand for the seven churches of Asia Minor. And there is Jesus, and this is very significant. He's not above, he could be, dictating his his word from on high. He's not alongside like peers or equals. He is in the midst, knowing their strengths, knowing their weaknesses, knowing their circumstances, sharing their afflictions. He is in the middle of, of them, and from the middle of the lampstands, Jesus dictates seven messages, seven letters, seven prophetic oracles, because they're not really written in the Greek form of a letter. You know, the Greek form, say Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. No, this is much more, thus saith the Lord. This is a prophetic oracle that is Jesus is giving, describing what it means to be the church in the world. In other words, what is required, not simply the message, but what kind of people, what and who do we need to be in order to live faithfully in an ever-increasingly pagan, hostile, and pluralistic world? In other words, what he's doing is saying, what virtues, what characteristics, as we communicate faithfully the message of the gospel, what kind of people, what kind of Christian, what kind of disciple should we be in order to be effective in our witness to Christ? In order to be the kind of Christian that's in a sense irresistible. And these messages, these letters then, do not so much give us a method for evangelism as they challenge us to ask what kind of people do we need to be in order to be most effective In our evangelism, what kind of character, what kind of virtues should we cultivate if we're going to be, as was said elsewhere in the scriptures, the salt of the earth and the light of the world? What kind of people do we need in order to be savory, in order to taste good, to be an attractive, irresistible witness in the world? And these seven messages highlight seven virtues, seven traits or characteristics that Christians need to grow in, need to cultivate, need to be aware of if we're going to be effective in ministering the gospel to the world, to our society today. So, for example, we saw to the church in Ephesus, the admonition was be a church of love. Recall and remember your first love, love for God and love for neighbor. And then to the church in Smyrna, be a people who are refined by suffering. Suffering is not just possible, it is inevitable for the Christian, for the disciple who is to live faithfully in the world. What does it mean to be refined by suffering? 
And today we're looking at the message to the church at Pergamum. And for the church at Pergamum, the issue is, what does it mean to be people of truth? Look with me, verse 12. One of the things we see in each of these letters is it begins to the angel of the church write the words of him, and then it draws from an aspect of the vision of chapter 1 and applies it to the needs of the particular church. So here, verse 12 says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That was part of the vision drawn from chapter 1 in verse 16, and it ought to, I hope in you biblical scholars, ring a bell. For example, if what was written to the church, to, written in the letter to the Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we're talking here about the truth, and we're talking very specifically about the truth of God's word. For the church at Pergamon was under attack concerning truth. And they were under attack from two fronts, from the outside world and also from within. And Jesus says from the outside world, verse 13, he gives them the commendation, the affirmation, you're holding fast to my name, you're not denying faith in me. But then he says, I hold this against you. From within your ranks, you're compromising with the truth. You're allowing false truth. So while affirming them, he also confronts them. He also gives them a dire warning. He wants them, and the Holy Spirit wants you. The Holy Spirit wants us. What does it mean to be a Christian in the world today? It means to be people of truth. And there are three things this, teach, this text teaches us that we need to recognize if we are to be people of truth in the world. Three, I hope, practical things that we need if we're going to be people of truth. People of truth need to recognize that, first of all, there's a battle for truth. Second of all, we need to recognize that truth has consequences. There are consequences of truth. And then finally, we need to recognize that there's a promise of truth. There's a battle, there are consequences, and there's a promise. Another way of putting this is we need to recognize the truth about the world, the truth about ourselves, and the truth about God. There's a battle for truth. We need to recognize that out in the world. The world is not neutral. Ideas matter. Truth matters. And when we engage with the world, there's a battle for truth. There's also a battle going on inside. We need to understand the truth about ourselves. What is the truth about you? What is the truth about me? There are consequences to truth. And then lastly, there's a promise of truth. What is the truth about God? First of all, we need to recognize the battle of truth. And to understand this, we need to learn a little bit about the city of Pergamum in order to understand the battle of truth, and also to help us understand a little bit about our world, if we're going to be Christians offering the truth to our world. Now, I need to tell you, I came into this sermon this week, and I knew absolutely nothing about Pergamum. I'm like, other than reading it, I'm kind of like, where in the world, what in the world is Pergamum? I mean, church at Rome, know a little bit about. Ephesus, studied a little bit. Philippi, a little bit. Pergamum. Let's find the research books. So I got to admit I owe all this to the historians that I'm reading a little bit, but I got to admit I found it fairly fascinating. 
And so first of all, Pergamum was built on a high rock, a rock throne, and it was famous for its magnificent library, a library that held over 200,000 parchment scrolls. And in fact, historians tell us that the word parchment derives from the word Pergamum. And it was the capital city of Asia, and it was also the center of Caesar worship. If you remember your world history, what happened in 44 BC? You know your Shakespeare, we have that et tu Brutus, and what happened? Julius Caesar was killed, the Roman Republic was no more, and it became an empire ruled by emperors. And one of the first emperors was Caesar Augustus. And Pergamum in 29 BC, just 15 years after the Civil War, was absolutely first in line to ask permission to build the first temple in honor of Caesar Augustus. In other words, the emperor cult was huge in Pergamum, which is why, as one historian wrote, he says, behind the city, rising some 1,000 feet above it, was a huge conical hill. And on the hill stood a whole host of temples and altars, but two temples were most dominant. One was dedicated to Zeus, who was called the savior god, the god of power. The other was dedicated to the worship of Asclepios. Asclepios was thought to be the god of healing, and the symbol of this particular god of healing, wait for it, was the serpent. Now, did you note verse 13, where he says, where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is? Again, biblical scholars, what is Satan known as? He's known as a serpent. Here, the symbol for this God that was on the hill right behind the city. So attend, worship, go to commerce, do your business, live in the city of Pergamum, and you are confronted by this temple behind your city all the time. And it was a temple that the priests used snakes in their healing service. So get this, another historian tells us that sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple, the temple to Asclepius, Asclepios, the healing god. And in the temple, I'm not sure if I would ever do this, were tame snakes. To me, that's an oxymoron. I'm not really sure if there's such thing as tame snakes. I'm not buying into it, but it's part of the history. In the night, the sufferers might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it slid over the ground in which he lay. The touch of the snake was supposedly, here's their belief, here's their presupposition, was held to be the touch of the God himself, and the touch was held to bring health and healing. Friends, this was the world. There is a battle for truth in the world. Ideas matter. See, people from all over the world would flock to Pergamum to receive the touch of the serpent. Such was the superstition that was alive. This was the context where Jesus, standing in the middle of the lampstands, he says, I know where you dwell. I know your battles. It's like if he's standing here and he's saying, I know what it's like to be a family in Port Orange. I know what you have to wrestle with. I know the pressures your kids face in school. I know what it's like to be on the college campus and the battle with paganism and the battle with hostilities to Christianity and the battle for your time. You've got this sport and this activity and this, the battle for the hearts and minds of young people. Jesus stands in the middle of the lampstands and he says there is a battle of truth going on. 
and he's asking Christians, are you even aware of the battle? Do you recognize it? The first step is if you're going to be a people of truth, you need to, you don't go out in the world and say, well, that's my friend. I go out in the world and kind of go, oh, it's all peachy and cream out here. This is fantastic. You know, unicorns and rainbows. This is a wonderful place. There is a battle for truth out in the world. I loved how one commentator put it. He says, in every way, Pergamum was a center for ideas that blinded people to the truth, to the truth about God, about the world, and about themselves. Friends, truth is never neutral. The battle for truth is a battle for reality. And this is part of the truth of the world and the truth of reality, which leads us to our second point. We need to recognize the consequences of truth. See, the truth that was in the world, Jesus commends me. He says, you're taking a stand. You're taking a stand here out in the world. But he says, I hold this against you. Look with me at verse 14. He says, there's something I hold against you. I need to warn you here. I says, I have a few things against you. And I don't know about you, but see, to me, words matter. And I read this and I go, this is from Jesus. And he's saying to us, to me, there's a difference between when Jesus says something's an abomination to him. I kind of go, he's sharing how he feels about this, and I need to take it seriously. But now he's saying, I have this against you. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, uh-oh. I better start to recoil in a little bit of fear and challenge. He's not just saying, I don't like this. He's saying, I'm in your face. I'm warning you. I'm confronting you. I have this against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Daryl Johnson says in his commentary on these verses, he says, falsehood and deception of any kind enslaves people. We live fully human lives to the degree that we see ourselves as we really are, to the degree that we see the world as it really is, and to the degree that we see God as God really is. See, why did God say, I have this against you? Is he being harsh? Is he being mean? No, he's confronting us because he loves us. He said, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And since truth is never neutral, if the truth sets you free, falsehood enslaves And he loves you enough to care about whether you're enslaved or not. He doesn't want the church to be enslaved to false presuppositions, false ideas, things that aren't true. He loves you and he wants you to flourish. He wants you to live a free, flourishing life. And there's only one way to do it, and it's under the truth of God. Now, why does he say this? See, what kind of people do we need to be to live faithfully as a disciple in the world? A Christian who is attractive yet truthful. To have what we're calling an irresistible witness. What kind of Christian do we need to be? See, let me tell you what the world would say. And you folks on the college campus sure know this. You're in the middle of this battle. The world would tell us that we need to be tolerant, wouldn't it? And by tolerance they mean you need, it's not just listening to other ideas, but it's affirming the validity the equality of every idea, any truth claim, any presupposition. Now, friends, is that a biblical virtue? Jesus says absolutely not. He says unequivocally 
No. But now here is the rub. According again to Daryl Johnson, and I love how he puts it, he says, while tolerance may not be a biblical, biblical virtue, patience is, understanding is, civility is, graciousness is, mercy is, tenderheartedness is, humility is, and listening is. Now I want to put a vision before you. We're looking at what does it mean, these letters, or what does it mean to be the church in the context of the world where there's a battle of truth. Imagine being the kind of church where we can genuinely disagree where, with others about ideas. Where, in other words, we are not tolerant to falsehood. We don't compromise with falsehood. But where we do so, with a warmth, with a humility, with a graciousness, with a tenderness, with an ability to listen and understand the other person's viewpoint. Not just hearing what we think we hear or what we want to hear, but genuine understanding. Imagine going, saying to somebody, what is it you're saying? I'm seeking to understand. And then maybe still going, I disagree. But we've gen we could even ask the person, did I understand your viewpoint correctly? And if they say no, we don't defend ourselves. We go, can you please explain it to me again so I understand? Because understanding is a biblical virtue. Tolerance is not. I don't know about you. I think that's a vision that is incredibly attractive, unbelievably unique, and not seen in the world today. Can you imagine what kind of irresistible church we would be if we actually cultivated biblical virtues in our life? Am I a dreamer or what? But what is the issue? See, look again at verse 14. What was the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans that Jesus was so against? The key phrase is the phrase, so that. Whenever you read so that, it indicates purpose. They compromised with this false truth from within so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and bear the fruit of practicing sexual immorality. But the issue, the heart issue, the issue when David prays, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, and know the disposition, the framework of my inner thoughts, the core issue is what is it we are obsessed with? What is it we are worshiping? What are the idols of our heart? And here's why Jesus is so passionate about it, idolatry and slaves. The truth sets you free, and the truth is never neutral. So if you're not believing and living out of the truth, you're living out of a lie, you're exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and you're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and that enslaves. And I'm going to say it again. Jesus wants you to be free. He wants your flourishing. He is not a mean God. But flourishing, human flourishing, happens only under the authority of God. Again, as one writer put it, the Balaamite Nicolaitans, their teaching was the exact opposite of this truth. They were arguing that it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to give oneself to any sexual practice as long as it did not hurt anyone else. Sound familiar? And to that, Jesus says no. 
Why does he say no? Because he's against food? No. Because he's against the body and creation? No. Because he's against sex? Emphatically, no. He is against idolatry. As another writer said, it was evil primarily because it robbed the true God of the glory due him exclusively alone. But it was also evil because it meant that the person engaged in a spiritual act and directing his worship towards something other than the one true God was brought into intimate union and relation with the lower, the evil, the spiritual powers. Friends, it is always a worship issue. It is always an issue of what is your heart captured by. Which brings us to the third point. People of truth recognize the truth about the world. They recognize there's a battle for truth. People of truth recognize the truth about ourselves. And they don't just go for the surface information. They know it's a heart issue and it's a worship issue. So they're always looking about themselves what is drawing me away from the true God to the worship of idols. And people of truth recognize the truth about God. They recognize the promise of truth. Verse 16, he says, therefore repent, and to repent means to change course, to change direction. And it doesn't just happen when you become a Christian, it is meant to be your whole life. Your whole life, if you're a person of truth, you're recognizing you're avoid, you know, what's the truth about yourself? You have this tendency to be captured by idols. You need to repent and to change course, change direction. So in other words, our entire life needs to be this changing of mind, changing course, changing direction. And then verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what the Spirit says to the churches? The Spirit says to the churches, here's the promise of truth. And the promise of truth is always about grace. And grace always transforms everything. He says, to the one who conquers, to the one who doesn't compromise the truth, I will give, and he gives two promises, some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. First, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Remember manna? Remember what manna was? The bread that fed and sustained Israel in the wilderness as they journeyed toward their inheritance, the promised land. Now, where's our life? What's the context and the situation of our life? As we live after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and before coming into the promised land, the inherited kingdom, we're in between where we're journeying in the wilderness. And what feeds us? Manna from heaven. What is the bread from heaven? Jesus is the bread of life. One commentator put it, here's what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying, why are you fooling around eating at the tables of lesser gods when you can come to me and eat food that truly satisfies? Christian, let me ask you very, very directly, what are you feeding on? Even if you are spending time in the word of God, seeking information, seeking the right doctrine, doing all the right things, you're going to Bible study, you're going to small group, you're spending time in prayer, and you are not feeding at the banquet table of what Christ has done for you. See, Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the bread of life. 
If you're feeding on anything other than Jesus, it will not satisfy you. Jesus alone can satisfy. See, what is the bread you're feeding on? Here's a simple way to think about it. You wonder why you're not satisfied. You wonder why you're bored. You wonder why you're restless. You wonder why you're without purpose or powerless. Why you're proud. Why you're anxious. Why you're fearful. Why you're cold. Why you're harsh. It's a worship issue. What are you feeding on? What has captured your heart? Because if it's not Jesus... Only Jesus can truly feed you and satisfy your hunger. And then how does he do this? Look at the second promise. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now what in the world does that mean? Revelation has interesting imagery, does it not? You're always faced with something. 13 heads, 14 toes, 6 you know, beasts, something coming out of the sky. Wouldn't it? I mean, great movie stuff. But now here you're faced with this gift from Jesus. I will give him a white stone. I'm dependent on Daryl Johnson, who leans a lot on Greg Beale, who's a teacher at Westminster Seminary, for this interpretation. And I think it's the best one. He gives the imagery back in the ancient world that came out of covenantal relationships, which is the world the first century lived in. That's the ancient Near Eastern world. And they said when two friends were about to part, they were about to separate. They would often divide a white stone in half, and each friend would inscribe their name on one of the halves and give it to the other. It was a symbol of their friendship, and it communicated something very specific. It communicated their commitment, their covenantal commitment to each other, to be loyal to that friendship, to maintain that friendship. In other words, it was a symbol of their union, their relation. They're bonding together. Jesus is then promising intimate friendship, union, relation, relationship with us to the one who conquers, who doesn't compromise with the truth, meaning who puts their faith in Jesus. I will give a white stone with a new name. Now, if it's cut in half and each puts their name on it, what does that mean? That means our name goes on the half Jesus gets, and Jesus' name goes on the half we get. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Where does that take place? That takes place on the cross. See, what does Jesus get on the cross? He gets our name. And we've got to start thinking biblically about what a name conveys. A name is your being. A name is your identity. It is who you are. Jesus is saying, you are being tattooed to me on the cross. Now think about that. Who are we? We are sinful, rebellious people filled with regret, guilt, shame, failure. He gets our name. Take the worst that you hate about yourself. The worst that you would never ever share with another human being. That you would never dare be so vulnerable and trust to another being. Jesus gets your name upon himself on the cross. But that's only half the picture. Because you get the white stone with his name 
A name that only you can know. You get his righteousness. You get his status. You get his achievement. You get him. You get a new identity. You are defined and identified by Jesus. Can you see now why trying to prove yourself? I have to be right. I'm validating myself. I'm defending myself. Can you see why idolatry is so utterly abhorrent to Jesus? He's given you himself. Is he not enough? Do you need more than Jesus? He's not good enough? That's what sanctification looks like. Learning to have Jesus and his grace be your identity. Be what defines you. Be what proves you. Be what validates you. And here's the promise. You will only know yourselves. And you will only become your true self to the degree that we know him. To the degree that you are plunging yourself into him, letting him take you with all your warts, all your messes, all your brokenness, all your self-hatred, all your failure. Let him take that and you take his status and you take his righteousness and you take his glory and you know that's how God sees you. And you begin to walk in confidence in and humility in him. What a promise. I want to close with this. Whether this was in Jesus' mind when he dictated this particular prophetic oracle or not, we can't know or prove. But here's what we do know from the scriptures. Jesus' mind was always governed by and consumed with the word of God. When he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he always responded, it is written. It is written. His mind was flooded and consumed and governed by the word of God. So to me, it's not outlandish to think that he would have Isaiah 62 on his mind as he dictated this letter. Isaiah 62, with the promise of the coming salvation that was later to be fulfilled by and in him, as he made the promise in the middle of the lampstand, as he looked upon the church that was at Pergamum and dictated this oracle. Isaiah 62 that says, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So you don't earn your name. You're not worthy of your name. You don't work up or strive for it. The mouth of the Lord gives you this identity, gives you this name. And you shall be a crown of beauty and a royal diadem in the hand of the Lord. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. What is your new name? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. May we learn to live with Jesus as our life, with Jesus as our identity, with Jesus as what defines us. Father, I pray that Spruce Creek would become the kind of church that is this irresistible witness, that we would definitely be a church that takes a stand for truth, but does so in a way that's winsome and attractive. Father, may we continue run to Jesus, who is our name, who is our identity, who defines us. In Jesus' name, amen.
One of the privileges we have is to bring our needs and our requests, what's called the prayers of the people, before the Lord, to bring the need of our family and the need of the world before the throne of grace. Let us pray. Your word tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So, Father, even as we pray, I pray that you would uh, begin to work in our hearts, that we would grow more soft and tender-hearted towards others in our joy with those who rejoice and our simple coming alongside in understanding those who weep. Help us to listen well and to be tender-hearted and to be understanding. Father, we pray, I pray for Bill and Lois Kelly. I lift them before you ask that you would continue to comfort them, that you would be with both of them, for they both are undergoing this in different ways. For Lois, as she is now going through radiation, for Bill, as he's coming alongside and watching his wife suffer. Father, you stand in the middle of the lampstand, and you know their affliction. We pray for Seton and Joyce Salke, and for Michelle, and we lift them before you. For Fred Wagan, we thank you for his successful surgery. For Denny Francis and Doris Toth, we lift up all those who are hurting. We remember them in prayer. Father, we pray, what kind of church, what kind of Christians do you want us to be? As we disciple one another and as we love our children, we pray for Vacation Bible School. As the women gather for their summer Bible studies, Lord, we do pray that they would be captured by the story of God as they study that to see that story of grace and mercy, that it would change their hearts and transform them. For the elders and deacons, that we would truly be men of God and men of holiness. That, Father, we would become godly men. Father, for our missions, we thank you for our missionaries, and we pray for campus outreach. We are grateful for these students and for their parents who are with us this morning. We pray for their leadership project. We pray for what you are teaching them and how they are growing as disciples of yours, preparing them to go back and to work and to serve on the campus. Make us the men and women that you want us to be. Instead of always asking, what do you want us to do? Help us to ask, who do you want us to become? How do you want to make us like Christ? Lord, you are our grace, you are our hope, you are our glory and the lifter of our heads. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.